I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We're really lucky, Lucy Briars and I, because this is the only dressing room that has a kitchenette and its own bathroom. Nice. There's a quote printed in the loo that says, it is a right royal building with a theatrical tradition fit for a king which is a quote that's been printed and underneath it, Ian McKellen has signed it, King Lear 2018. So what I'm going to do when I leave is take a sharpie and say, fit for a king, dot, 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 and queen. Absolutely. And right. yeah. Hi, I'm John Wilson. Welcome to These Three, a series in which I talk to artists, musicians, writers, directors, actors, photographers, all sorts of creative people, in fact, about their artistic lives by focusing on three key works, one that they made themselves, that they're particularly proud of, one by somebody else that they wish they'd made, and one that they're working on right now. Hello, I'm Hayley Atwell, and I'm going to be telling you a little bit about a role I've played, a role I wish I'd played, and a role I'm currently playing. Hayley Atwell is in her dressing room in a London West End theatre, preparing for tonight's performance of Rosmer's Home, a late 19th century play by Henrik Ibsen, all about love, grief and political turmoil. More of that later uh, when we discuss the role I'm playing. Hayley, welcome mm, to Thank this you program. for having me. Welcome to my dressing room. You're here in a the theatre today, but if we stepped out from the stage door of the Duke of York's and headed round to one of the many cinemas here in the West End. Of course, you could see Hayley in the biggest film of the year, Avengers Endgame, of mm. course, in which Hayley plays Agent Peggy Carter, a super spy, mm-hmm. a love interest of Captain America. Uh, we've also seen her on screen in the remake of Brideshead Revisited, The Duchess, the recent adaptation of Andrea Levy's The Long Song, a lot of period dramas. I know. Well, I'm a big fan of adaptations of books. I love literature and it just so kind of happens that I naturally gravitate towards projects and people whose work kind of stems from a piece of literature and so inevitably a lot of that has ended up being period dramas. I have though, I have to say, I loved being in Black Mirror and that was something that I felt was so different to any kind of genre I've done before. The Charlie Brooker series. Yeah, and I got to wear jeans. It was just <laughs> so 
exciting. Was that a first for you on <laughs> screen? Was. On screen it was, yeah. So even when I got Captain America, I thought, a oh, brilliant superhero, completely different thing than, I'm, than the period dramas I've done before. And of course, it's set in the 40s, my one. So um, yeah, there is exactly. still period. You're wearing a, an army uniform. Yes, a, it's a from the 1940s. 1940s, exactly. so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but of course, you were in Black Mirror, and I remembered mm. the one where the boyfriend dies, dies and yeah. she's hanging on to him and trying to reimagine him or wish him back into this world yeah using um te- it's called be right back yeah. and it was using technology to cut that simulates him and as a, as a supposedly as a grieving tool but of course it means that she can't quite move on and the um the kind of the robot version of him becomes so lifelike that it's very hard for her to kind of discern between reality and and this kind of suspended reality that she's living in with him um unbeknownst to the rest of the world so it's 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 quite dark um but a kind of a beautiful poignant study on grief and i think charlie brooker I mean, I, I contacted them directly after seeing the first mm. series and went, I have, to, I have to be involved in this in some way. It's so original. So, yeah. So, so not only a lot of period dramas, a lot of grief on your CV as a well. A lot I of mean, grief. <laughs> I know, for someone who hasn't experienced that. I mean, we'll talk about Rosmer's home, but it's there in Captain America as well, isn't it? About sort of yeah, love loss. and loss. Absolutely. Uh, the loss of, loss of a loved one. How to process grief uh, with dignity in the hope that it will eventually be transformed into something of use or of purpose and that you can become integrated into who you are and part of what defines choices that you make, that it hopefully it will kind of humanises people and pacifies people in a way that makes them more empathetic. What has Avengers done for you, just in terms of profile and the roles that you can take, the roles that you're being offered, I guess also the audience that's coming here to, to see Ibsen every night. I, yeah. I, are you noticing quite a... A younger yeah, audience coming. Uh, it's so lovely to see and to meet people. And I always go outside afterwards to sign because I love to see who who is it that's coming to see this. And I'm I'm so happy that so many of them have been Marvel fans that have not particularly interested or know of Ibsen's work or theatre, but are captivated by this. And they're talking about Endgame, but they're talking about the effects that this play has on them. And although some of the ideas are politically quite complex, uh, they're kind of they're philosophical at times. Religion comes into it. Uh, this might not be some the subjects of interest to them, especially because this was set 134 years ago. But they're still relating to the human nature, the human relationships that a lot of these arguments kind of live out through. And that's really wonderful to see because I I love theatre. I love this world. I'm probably more comfortable here than than <laughs> anywhere else really it's it's kind of feel like what I've been trained for so to be part of a franchise so beloved that still comes and finds me in the jobs that I'm doing and bringing a new audience to theatre exactly. a younger audience I, in particular yeah, yes exactly I think I'm very very grateful to Marvel continue to be of that I get to portray a character that is wholesome that is not over sexualized mm. that is not too much of one thing that she seems to be uh, independent knows her own mind and she's super and, smart and super smart exactly and so to have those qualities kind of follow me around uh, that other men and women and boys and girls have attributed to and and, and have um, sought some kind of inspiration from it's beautiful. It's a lovely thing. It's a real. It's a real kind of gift that I'm. I'm very grateful to. And theatre, you say, is your, is your comfort zone. So here we are in a dressing room. We're mm. what a couple of hours, two or three hours before curtain up. Mm. Is there a ritual? Is there a sort of a certain routine that you have to go through? It, are you superstitious? I'm not superstitious. I know that much, and I don't have a particular ritual for every job that I do. It very much depends on the atmosphere that's created in a rehearsal room. I, I feel great work happens 
when the ensemble is bigger than the individual parts. And so we play volleyball in the auditorium every day and, and really silly games. Every day. Every before day before 6pm to 6.30 is a volleyball. We put a net up in the seat by the seats. That's fantastic. Your director's Ian Rickson. Is that his thing? Does he does he bring the ball in? Yeah, he he. it's his thing. It's also a stage manager, Ben Delfont, who's brilliant at it. You always kind of want to be on his team because he's so good at it. But it's a great way of kind of, it, it wakes us all up, gets yeah. kind of the competitive spirit going. And more than anything, I think any rituals I have, is rituals about freedom, freeing the voice, freeing my body, being out of my own head, not being too much in my own ego or any kind of fear-based perspectives on wanting to, you know, to do a good job that night. So it's just kind of getting out of your own personality, really, and kind of shaking off the day and coming into a dressing room like this just to kind of, just to be in the space. And it's nothing too serious and it's nothing too kind of, you know, earnest. It's just being, <laughs> being alive to it and be receptive to it. Come on, three roles, and we're okay. going to start with the role I played. Um, chances are it's going to be a period drama. Yes, of course. <laughs> well, I, I thought about Black Mirror, but I I kept on coming back to this one, which is Margaret Schlegel in Ian Forster's Howard's End, and we did a television adaptation of it, adapted by the remarkable writer Kenny Lonergan, probably most recently known for his Oscar-winning director and writer of Manchester by the Sea and also many, many plays. He adapted this beautiful book. He didn't watch the film. He went directly to the book again. I mean, this is an adaptation of a book, not a retelling of the film. And um, when the call came in to do it, for me, the period drama aspect of it was honestly a little bit of a turn-off, just because I really want to be accessible to people who are not necessarily gravitating towards period dramas. So how do I get, you know, how do I break through the endless, binded, corseted, stuffy, uptight versions of period dramas that can leave me quite cold, you know, that feel too mannered? And when I met with Hetty MacDonald, the director, and we spoke with Kenny Lonigan about it, it was very kind of clear from the beginning the how fine this piece of work was and how humanitarian it was and how E.M. Forster wrote this extraordinary woman. He chose Margaret Schlegel as a character that expresses his ideas. And I, I, wanted to, I have it on my phone here. I just want to make sure I get it right. The, the quote, the very famous quote that many people will know of Margaret Schlegel is the quote, only connect. That was the whole of her sermon. Only connect the prose and the passion and both will be exalted and human love will be seen at its height live in fragments no longer. Ultimately, it's the moving towards each other yeah. um, and opening up a dialogue that begins with one's differences to the other person. And when we did Howard's End, it felt particularly resonant because with social media and the political climate at the time and still where it, we're at at the moment, there was just constant warring of both sides. When was it? Uh, it came out 2017. And uh, it was nominated for BAFTA for Best Series. So it had great acclaim, but unfortunately, because of the, the channel in the States that it was on, very few people saw it. That um, So regardless of that, though, the piece itself for me was absolutely what I was saying before about the attempt to go beyond myself. You know, Margaret Schlegel is not someone I have any sort of connection with. Born into this Edwardian world where it's very much kind of the idealistic romantic idea of England just before the first world war and you have Margaret at the, the head of of this family and she is trying to combine uh, the intellect and emotion and she 
is courted by Henry Wilcox, who is a businessman, a capitalist, and seemingly to be... All his values seem to be completely opposite hers. But she comes to love him. And in loving him, it's she's living out what she believes, which is to go towards people. Mm. And um, there's one moment in it that I found was so kind of profound selflessness and maturity. She asks him to do a kindness to her for her sister. And her sister is uh, finds herself pregnant out of wedlock. And she goes to her husband and says, you know, will you, will you let us stay at Howard's End tonight with my sister while we work out our best to look after her? And he refuses. And he, his initial reaction is that it would be shameful that if anyone realised that he was housing a woman out of, pregnant out of wedlock, that it would look bad on him. And in that moment, his character of being someone that is entirely obsessed with his own reputation and status, that she realises that he does not have the integrity or the morality uh, or the compassion or the empathy that she has and that she looks for in others. So she, she realises that, you know, she, she has to walk away. But in doing so she still excludes him. And that's also against her belief system. Mm. So the story is very much like, how can you still be true to yourself, but still continue to walk towards people who seemingly are working against your core values? And how can you make peace with that person? And how can you find common ground? And so I thought it's a very elegant and much emotionally mature story. And we kind of, like, you know, so on set, we're going, God, we'd all love to be a little bit like Meg. So it's like she's constantly reaching out, trying to be beyond her own limited thought system. And I found that to be very inspiring and, and, and hopeful. But she believes in the strength of kindness. Is it hard to play people that you really dislike? I mean, you haven't actually played many disreputable or unlikable characters. I've just, I've just started. So here's my kind of changing trajectory of the work. And I think, for me, this as an actor, becomes a bit of a mark of maturity, that I'm no longer just interested in playing the good mm. characters, but it's why I took The Long Song, that Andrea Levy, beautiful, beautiful um, book that she'd written, and we made it as she was very ill, and it came out just before she passed away. And you were playing the, the plantation owner's... Owner, the slave owner. Well, they she is the owner, isn't she? She's the sister of the guy who's no inherited. Or, yes, yeah. she has no rights or wealth of her own, again, like Rebecca West, but she is a product of her time. And on the page, because she's told through the narrative of our heroine, who is a slave and the, the maid of this my character she's told in slightly, I suppose at moments, kind of hysterical, caricature, kind of monstrous almost pantomime ugly sister and and on the reading of it i thought i don't know how to play this mm. she she's so grating on the page but the challenge was for me i think also having played someone like margaret it was so refreshing to then go and play someone who was the opposite yeah. who was so woefully ignorant and was that interesting to play then i mean given that you have played strong and upstanding and Mm. A lot of nice women in the past to play this person who is quite awful. Quite awful. Ways. And that's necessary in terms of stretching yourself as an actor. Yeah. I think, you know, we limit ourselves by if we say, you know, I want, only want to play characters that, that I like or that other people like or that seem to be socially acceptable or are just the heroes. So, so back to... So back to the <laughs> next role. Yes. Well, Howard Ten, I mean, that's, that's something that clearly you are very proud of. Mm. Do you look very often at other people's performances and think, I should have done it like that, I wish I could do something like that? No, I... I th well, like in theatre, you know, when you go, just because Judy, our dame, our dear Judy, did the most 
I think one of the most probably the best Lady M that I've ever seen, which we can still get. Trevor Nunn's production of Ian McKellen. Mm. By the way, that bed there in the corner was donated by Ian McKellen when he did Lear in here. It's just a little side note anecdote. He so brought the bed in and he and brought left the bed it. in and left it. So I'm very grateful really? to him. I get to nap. That is of Ian. the McKellen bed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just so cute. I just get such a kick out of that still. Um, but just, you know, because Jude Judy's done that doesn't then mean that... You can't have a go. We can't, no, because that's what's great about... I think that's also the generosity of more of the theatre world and actors. They go, well, you want to have a bash at that. Like mm. we all, you know, a lot of the guys will want to have their Iago moment or the Hamlet or whatever it is. And a lot of women would often say, I want to have my, you know, the Teresa Rakan or the Cleopatra or the whatever it is. And so that's all kind of in the canon. And you just, well, you want to have a go at it. You, don't you haven't kind of, done Lady M, have you? Not yet. Uh, I'd like to play Iago, actually, now that we're in a slightly more modern yeah, era absolutely. of gender swapping. Can I just ask you something, though? You said Lady M. Is that on purpose? Is that because you are a little bit superstitious? Oh, do you know what? You're not you know say what? It, you? I'm not going to say it. <laughs> I'll, tell, I'll tell you one reason why. We were discussing, I did a play at Hampstead last year, called two years ago, called Dry Powder, and um, we were talking about how not we weren't superstitious. And just before the matinee, one of the other actors just said it. And he went, see? And I kid you not, in the matinee, there were these revolving, they looked like giant Toblerones, but they're made of mirrors. And one of them fell over and smashed, and there was glass all over the no. stage. Yeah. And I was just like, that's just annoyingly weird. <laughs> like, if people, just, just, just explain, if people don't understand the word we're talking about, I'm mm, not going to say it, obviously, because the it's Scottish very important. Play, this is a Scottish play. Say, uh, yeah, but the, we're in the theatre, but the superstition yeah, is... The one who wants to be king with the ambitious wife. We all know what we're talking about now. But, yeah, exactly. so that actually happened, and now... It's not so much superstition, it's a respect of the ritual of... Act just, just as a group of we don't do we don't say that. And it's I in, said it's it a in sense front of, of Simon to... Russell Beale once in the National Theatre. Oh, and what does he do? He what made do... me walk out. Oh yeah, what? Yeah. I had to walk out the door. I had to then knock and ask permission to come in. I then had to turn round three times in front of him and spit on the floor. That was his way of overcoming the thing because it slipped out. And as soon as I said it, I said, "Oh shit, I'm not supposed to say that, am I?" Yeah. And I said, "You okay?" And he went, "No, I'm not okay. I'm really not okay." And I, we had to do this. I love that. Brilliant. I love that. Well, I think there is power in a belief of something like that. There is yeah. power if we give superstition power. I think it weirdly takes on a kind of a bit of a force of its own. Um, so I'm, I yeah, believe in the power that we have to create superstition. Right. Okay, let's move on. Yeah, the role you wish you'd played. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Anytime, any place, any role, anywhere, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. film, stage, television, whatever. Well, the first one came to mind and I went, oh, yeah, yeah. And then I looked at some other ones and I just kept on going back to this. It has to be Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind. Wow. Mm-hmm. Mm. And is it a film that you watched a lot as a kid? No, not really. I think I've probably seen it about three times. And I, the first time I got it, I went, oh, I don't like her. She's very, she's horrible and spoilt and petty and petulant and is really mean to the, the lovely Olivia de Havilland. When you're re- revisiting it now, of someone who knows a little bit more about character arcs and character development, analysing it from that point of view, where Vivian Lee's performance begins and, and in the space of, what, three and a half hours, four hours even maybe, what she undergoes. It's ultimately a story of survival and how adversity forges character. And it's on the backdrop of a period of time which I find so fascinating and and a dark part of America's past that it still has to reckon with and, and hasn't fully healed. And, of course, the backdrop of the Civil War. So... And I'm my family and my father's side are all from the Midwest. Oh, you're half American, um, aren't yeah. you? Yeah, so they're originally from Kansas City. So growing up there, and when I was younger, younger, there's a uh, the stories of the South and the stories of the Midwest and coming coming over the Santa Fe Trail and um, in a wagon. You know, that was all part of kind of stories that my family would tell me about where we had come from. And, really, and, and those stories had been passed down. They were real stories that yeah, had gone down through the generations. Through, through letters and how... Wow, pioneers. There was, there's, a, there's a myth within the family that during the Civil War, um, an ancestor of mine was given land as payment for serving, um, but it was a bit of land on Catalina Island, which at that time had nothing on it and was was off you know, the the coast of California, and then he so he gambled it in a poker game, <laughs> lost it, and I love stories like that. It's so different to kind of you know me growing up in London in the eighties. Yeah. You know, it's just where did the family come from? That that American side. Where where were they travelling from through the Midwest Western? For, as far I mean, they were English, but had so but, it, was, it was English originally. English originally, okay. yeah, and then um, travelled and then got on a wagon and travelled the Santa Fe Trail, and most of them uh, settled in Kansas City. And I would spend my summers there, and I lo- and I could hear the sound of an old train go by where my grandmother lived, and the the sight of lightning bugs and the smell of the humidity, which is so particular. There's like this sweet humidity in in Kansas City that is so nostalgic for me. And when I watch things like fried green tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe, it reminds me of an Americana and a nostalgia for it that was was so enthralling to me as a kid from right. urban London in the, you know in the, in the 1980s so gone with the wind absolutely ticked all those boxes for me and I was when I was actually filming Endgame I was in Atlanta which of course is where Margaret Mitchell who wrote gone with the wind was from and wrote the book so on my day off I went to the house that she wrote the book in which is now a museum and there's a museum next door to it and then you can go and tour the house and you can see the little corner by the window and the typewriter that she used and, and you've read the book of course yeah and having read the book and gone 
this woman wrote this over a period of three years because she had an ankle injury. And she was her, her very devoted husband, who was also a writer, would come home every day with all these library books for her to kind of devour, weighed down by all these the heaviness of all these books. And so one one day he just came back with a typewriter and he went, just write, write a book instead. So she wrote Gone with the Wind. Amazing. And she was so embarrassed about doing it because she, didn't, she hadn't written a novel before that she would, every time guests would come in and unannounced, she would just hide pages of it under like coffee tables or under a couch cushion. And of course, you know, she, got, she goes on to win the Pulitzer and within the space of a year it's, it's picked up and it's going to be made into this epic film. And it was made in 1939 at a time when America having suffered in, the, in depression is now also the, the European threat of World War II happening. It was a very kind of tumultuous time and to have this kind of grape sweeping epic and have this heroine at the centre of it who ultimately this goes back to why I would want to would love to have played her is that she's just this kind of force unto herself you know she's she's petulant she's petty but she's still so stubborn and strong-willed and awful but kind of like so unashamedly bad to the people around her and I kind of think that I love the almost the the freedom of that. You know, as a, a child, I was very concerned with being doing the right thing and not upsetting other people. And if I did misbehave, I was, and if I was reprimanded from it by a teacher or if I'd hurt someone, I would be beside myself, overly sensitive about if I'd done something bad. But it also stopped me from kind of rebellion. I didn't really rebel, and yet you have a character like Scarlett O'Hara who's so deeply self interested and kind of ignores the guidance of the extraordinary women around her, Mamie and also her mother, who's like this kind of pillar of integrity and morality. And then she, because of extreme adversity and losing everything, that's when the real character is forged. And she's saying things like, you know, tomorrow is another day, and as God is my witness, I'll never go hungry again. And then, great lines. And it's great. These, you know, and I love a bit of the epic. There's something kind of... <laughs> I'm big into the big emotions and the big drama. She I, won Oscar. Did she, she win the did. Oscar for it as well? Yeah, she yeah. did. And she also fought for it. Um, there was 1,400 people that were seen for it. They spent $100,000 on searching for the right Scarlett O'Hara. 1,400 auditions for 1400, Scarlett? yeah, of Unknowns. Catherine Hepburn was it. She really wanted it, but... Um, was she married to Laurence Olivier at the time? Was that Vivian right? Lee was, yeah. yeah. I think, yeah. They were yes, married I at the time, so. weren't they? Um, but, she, but, she was, I know, but she was kind of unknown. And I, I think I also what I love about her is that even at the end, when he goes, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn, she's still... Ah, it's the director. <laughs> this is Ian Rickson walking in on the interview. The director. Of yes, Rosmer's come on. Home. We need to do the notes. Yes, oh, you're doing notes now. Five pm. Five pm. Thanks, Thanks Fifteen minutes. Thank yeah, you, Ian. She'll minutes. be there. <laughs> um, so, but but at the so I think what I love about her is that the even at the end when he says you know Frank, my don't give a give a damn, you get this kind of sense that she's always going to be okay because of what she's had to develop within herself in order to survive. So I just think it's an extraordinary trajectory of a yeah. person. And also, it, she, everyone speaks so fast. And it's just, I'm just thinking, like, the energy it would have taken in order to sustain that amount of... You could have coped with that, though. I think so. I'm very fast talking. You do speak very fast. <laughs> I know, I do, I do. <laughs> You've I packed do. a lot in. Now I'm aware that the director is banging on the door <laughs> and saying, hurry up, we are going to have to move on yeah. to the role I am playing. Which is self-evident, because we're here at the Duke of York's Theatre with the director banging on the door saying he wants to give you notes for mm. Rosmer's Home. Mm. And we mentioned it at the beginning. Mm. Very rarely performed Ibsen play. Mm. I saw it the other week when you just started the run. I was absolutely knocked away by this play because I, it was, I knew nothing about it. Mm. It's a tough piece, and it speaks to 
today, strangely enough, even though it's, mm. what, 140 years old? 134 years old. I had not heard of the play, and very few people I know had heard of the play, let alone not been even able to pronounce it. Roshma's, Roshma bomb, Shlobotosh. It's the home of Rosma. That's the way to Rosma's remember it. Rosma's home. Rosma's yeah. home. Yeah. Ibsen wrote this after 27 years of self-imposed exile, doing all his writing in either Munich or Italy. And he comes back to Norway and he discovers or he, what he perceives to be kind of a sham democracy. And he believes that in order to move civilization forward, it is about ennobling the, no, the workers and the women. So he writes Rosmer's Home. And it's seldom performed, despite the fact that Ibsen is the second most performed playwright in the world after Shakespeare. And that his, he's so well known for his heroines like Hedda Gabler and Nora and A Doll's House. Duncan Macmillan had adapted it. Ian Rickson was going to direct it. Sonia Freeman was producing it. Tom Burke was playing Rosmer. And it was just like, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> <laughs> and another very strong female part at the centre of this play. Mm. So you are Rebecca West, mm. and she is the former best friend of the wife of Rosmer, who has died. Uh, and we understand over the course of the play how she's died and the circumstances. Mm. But there is a, clearly a romantic, and well, actually a sexual tension between Rebecca and mm. Rosma himself. Mm. Mm. But then all this political turmoil going on outside. I yeah. mean, it's, it's really well, it's, chiming it's, with what's going on at the moment, absolutely. isn't it? Absolutely. Well, there's, um, it talks about the press being responsible for the, what it feeds people. You have Rosma, who is the seat of power in this town. And up until this point, he's kind of been politically neutral. But you, you kind of know from his friends and the, 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 the name of Rosma that they're slightly more right-leaning. They're very much in tradition. And you have his brother-in-law called Kroll, who has become a governor, and he wants to try and influence Rosmer because he knows that there are so many undecided voters in this great general election that's about to happen that Rosmer really will be able to impact lots of people who still yet to vote and decide. And so he's trying to push him into this more traditional way of, of upholding the social conditions of the time. Because he's, he was seen as a very highly moral man, a man of great upstanding at the centre of He was also society. the town's pastor. He was a pastor, of course, yeah. And what we also discover, though, is that when his wife killed herself, he also, around that time, not only resigned from being a pastor, but renounced his faith. So since the suicide, he's been undergoing a personal crisis of identity and doesn't quite know how to fill that existential void now. Of course, you know, Ibsen was influenced by people like Nietzsche and Sartre, so existentialism was around, God. the idea of God is dead, Marxism was around. So Rosmer's kind of battling with all of these things. And then you have this, this third power, this force, which is Rebecca West. What we know about her is the confidant of the wife who then led you know, killed herself. She stayed in this house for this last year, well, Beth, since Beth has died. We don't quite know why. What's she doing there? Mm. Um, but she seems to have had this kind of relationship with Rosma. It was a meeting of kind of minds. There's a lot of it's sexually charged, but they've never even touched or acknowledged mm. that there is kind of passion there. And she is self-educated. She is radical. She's a free thinker. Rosma has given her freedom to be herself. So they engage in lots of debate. And what you realise is that Rebecca is trying to push Rosmer towards the left. And so you've got Kroll pushing him one way, Rebecca pushing the other. And the obstacle, of course, between them is that Rebecca and Rosmer are in love. And so they're almost their love really complicates matters. You know, at some point, Kroll says, you know, I don't know what I'm looking at. And Rosmer later on says, I don't know. I don't know what I'm looking at. And there's the big conflict, or the question is, did she lead a woman to her death or has she just confessed to something that wasn't true in order to sacrifice herself to help a man uh, be relinquished of his own guilt? 
some nights feel it swings more one way than the other. So you never know yourself entirely? Not, you, no. You can play it in different ways. Yeah, it's often how, the, how it ends up telling itself through how we as an ensemble... You know, if there's a particularly strong night for Kroll, whose arguments land in a particular way that can make Rebecca feel very vulnerable or threatened, it might empower her to fend herself more. And then there are other times when I almost feel that she is much more Machiavellian. And the audience is, is kind of up to them what they make of her. There's a man that I met outside the stage door and he came back the next day just, he's like, do you think she's telling the truth when she confesses to what she supposedly confesses to? And I go, oh, that's for you to decide. I know it's really frustrating, wow. but... But that's what's, I think, the genius of Ibs, what Ibsen did, is that he's taken a heroine like Rebecca and gone, we're making her ambiguous because human beings are. Are we ever entirely innocent? Are we ever entirely guilty? Do we ever really know ourselves? But isn't it great that those ambiguities can be played out in different ways every night? That's why the theatre is so great. Yes. Good afternoon. Let's have you all up to <laughs> Jake and Peter's dressing room, please. Ah, <laughs> that's it. Jake and Peter's dressing room. Thank you. That's notes. Hayley, fantastic to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And if you enjoyed Hayley Atwell, listen out for other episodes featuring the likes of Paul Weller, Tom O'Dell, Jonathan Yeo, Lucy Preble, Kwame Kwayama, Guy Garvey, and there are many more on the way. Please do rate and review these three. It helps other people find the series. And subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. Also, have a look at the website. We've got more information about all of the guests. There are photographs, videos, uh, previews of forthcoming episodes. We're on Twitter and Instagram, of course. These Three is produced and presented by me, John Wilson, in association with Analog Folk. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.